Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shawnee man? I feel I need to make an apology to begin today's podcast for some disparaging remarks I made on the show recently about the penalty shootout in football. We were talking about the scrapping of the away goals rule in Europe and how the that is going to result in basically way more shootouts, which I may have described as being repetitive and lacking in drama compared to the match-turning theatre of an away goal. I stand by my love of the away goal, but... It must be said, the shootout does have its place in the game, and that place is at the end of 120 minutes of scoreless football in a cup final, like we saw at the Carabao Cup yesterday. Welcome to the football podcast. Hi, guys. Owen, how are you? Owen, how are you? Plenty to like about this one. There was... (laughs) Vibe shift. Nice vibe shift, Murph. (laughs) Fair play. No, sorry, go on. A vibe shift. Vibe shift. Vibe shift. Is that a German word for something, or...? (laughs) <laughs> no, no, that's it. That, that you didn't see it. Was a viral sensation of ten days ago. Vibe yeah. shift. A vibe I'm, shift. Is I'm sorry, coming. Ken. You know, there's there's actually more important things going on in the world. It was before um, the um, terrifying nuclear escalations uh, of more recent days. Uh, it was something to do with uh, people after the pandemic. We're gonna like loosen up and start wearing more '90s style clothing. I can't even remember what the argument was. <laughs> but the point was, vibe shift was the phrase that. Um, Attracted, I I would say praise and derision in equal measure, except that the volume of derision was actually far greater than the amount of praise. You know, but it's all it's all grist in the middle of the writer. I'm sure it all went down. Uh, all went down well with the publisher as well. Well, there's a lot to like about the Carabao Cup penalty shootout. Anyway, that's for sure. There's Quivine, of course. We'll get to him in a second. Mo Salah showing he'd learned precisely none of the lessons from the Africa Cup of Nations final, electing to go fifth once again. Oh, oh, I was annoyed by that as well, Owen. You know, I felt he had to though. You know, like the, he had to own the terrible mistake of the African Cup of Nations final. Like, what would you feel like if you were an Egyptian football supporter and you saw Mo Salah dutifully, dutifully walk up to take the third penalty? And you'd be like, like, at least he's learned, you know what I mean? He's, he's, but he's no, just... I feel like at least, at least now he can say, I've got the courage of my convictions. You know, this, you know I am what I am. <laughs> For better or worse, I am what I am. As it happened, he wasn't even halfway down the running order of takers. There was Virgil van Dijk's penalty and yes. something else to like this, which I, I didn't truly appreciate at the time, Ken, but he... Fairly made a fool of Kepa for that one, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, that was... There was two penalties in a row by Liverpool, which I think... 
I mean, it's hard to say. It's hard to say, really, but it kind of been good for Kepa's confidence. I, I mean, it was a really interesting shootout on a number of levels. Mm-hmm. First of all, are people just getting better at penalties now? Because this is the second time I've seen this shootout in the last less than a year after the Villarreal-Manchester United shootout, which was also 11-10 with the goalkeeper of one of the teams missing the final penalty to decide it. I mean, that was, if you remember, it wasn't, that was 11-10. Was nobody, nobody else missed. Yep. Am I right? Yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure, yeah, yeah. And De Gea was the one who missed the final penalty. And here's another 11-10 with the goalkeeper missing the final penalty. And I'm not sure that I'd seen that happen before in all the years of watching penalty shootouts. Now here, here we get it twice in a row. So there was a lot of good penalties. Um, there was also the contrasting styles of the goalkeepers because I thought it was, I mean, Kepa was doing a lot of what we have come to sort of expect from goalkeepers. You know, you go back to the old spaghetti legs uh, and the thinking being, well, you know, the more you can sort of prance about on the goal line and sort of, you know, even make an idiot of yourself to some extent, um, the, the more chance you have of putting off the opposing uh, kickers and getting a uh, you know a good outcome and once again it this did not work um because Kepa reminded me of nothing more than Joe Hart well especially when Fabinho did what Fabinho, Fabinho came up you know we've seen Fabinho take penalties before usually slams the ball pretty hard into one of the corners is a, has a great record as a penalty taker I was not expecting him to do the Penenka but this is if you remember what Pirlo did to Joe Hart in that penalty shootout in mm. the Euro Euro 2012 and it just has such a deflating effect I feel on the goalkeeper when his all of his sort of you know capering about is just dismissed so disdainfully with like a contemptuous chip into you know that was penalty number two then penalty number three Kepa was standing on on the right side of the goal yeah, daring that's the Van Dyke yeah, daring yeah, yeah. Van Dyke to kick it in kick it oh you know and uh, what, are, what are you going to do and he's and he's he's literally he's almost three quarters of the way across the goal you know what I mean it's like it's like halfway between the center of the goal and the right post and Van Dyke kicks the ball in on, in that corner. And then looks back at Kepa as though to say, yeah, I mean, we all saw what happened there. And so I thought, wow. Then, of course, the but but what was interesting then as well was the contrast with Kelleher. His, did you notice Kelleher's style? Uh, as in what, just no real movement? Just just sort no of... No movement at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was just standing, he was standing stock still, sort of staring at the penalty taker. Also an unsuccessful ta- tactic, it turns out, for saving penalties. <laughs> well, it didn't, it didn't work. I mean, Kelleher, like Kepa, has got a good... Uh, record, you know, in terms of saving penalties going through in, in shootouts, you know, he's he's done it a couple of times already, I think. Uh, so it was uncharacteristic for him uh, to not save any penalties out of out, out of ten. Um, but but his, I, I wondered if his technique was actually, in terms of the slightly unnerving effect. I mean, if you if the object is to unnerve the taker, then just the total stillness was actually almost as. At least the guy jumping around a bit, you, you're kind of thinking, well, you know, I'll show you. Whereas this guy standing, just there's a kind of an uncanny effect to that. It's like, well, what are you doing? Why are you staring at me like that? You know, you're like Fiverr and Watership Down. I don't know if he would have saved the penalty either. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> well, are you looking into, the, what, what is your gaze fixed on? Like, are you looking into the future to see which way I'm going to put this penalty? It was, it was strange. But, of course, Keller didn't manage to save any. Kepa... Like, I swear, the Kanade penalty must have hit Kepa in, like, the dead center of his right glove and still mm. somehow ended up going into the net, which I just couldn't. I, I, I have no idea how he, how, the, how he didn't keep that one out. There was a couple of ones they should have saved. Uh, and then in the end, 
when Kepa stepped up. I honestly don't think anyone was that surprised no. by by what happened at that point. Let's give Cuevin Keller his moment here. The, here he is himself, followed by his manager talking to Sky after the game. It's a mad one. I thought I'd, I'd save one. I didn't. I got close to a few, and then when it came down to me, I didn't even think I scored the winning penalty. I, I forgot we were actually like I scored the winning one. So now, nah. listen, all the penalties from the lads were class. So I was just happy to score. You used to be an outfield player, didn't you? Up to about 15, 16, did you channel your youth when you took your penalty? Nah, I think it was more hitting up. <laughs> I think you said after your semi-final win against Arsenal, Cuevin Kelleher will be my goalkeeper at Wembley, but even you couldn't have imagined how it would end. No, of course not. It's, look, I think even in professional football, there should be space for some sentiment, to be honest. So, and it's a young boy, we ask him to do a lot, he gets the competition, he play, starts playing, and then in the final I tell him, no, you don't play. I, I, I'm two things, a professional football manager and a human being. And a human being won this time, and that's why it's so nice that he pays all off, he deserves it. Then we told Ali that he will not play, we have a, uh, at the AXA training centre, we have a, a wall at the goalkeeper area where all goalkeepers are on who want something. When I when we told him to play, said, oh great, if we win it, we can put Cleave on it as well. So that's exactly how it should be, absolutely great. He's quite quotable, is Jurgen Klopp. <laughs> oh, yeah. In the midst of all that, I'm a professional football manager and a human I'm being. A human the being. Human, the human being won out there. So yeah. uh, nice that it did for from the point of view of Cleveland Keller. I don't know if we'll go down well with everyone that, you know, Klopp hailing himself as a human being. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we know <laughs> we know how football, f- football people are. You know, you're, you're a human being, you're in the sense of it like self praise. Um, <laughs> You know, especially when you obviously com- uh, compare it to uh, his opposite number, Thomas Number Wang Tuchel. Uh, you know, with uh, sending on uh, after after Mendy, like I mean, people all around Wembley were weeping at the majesty of what they had witnessed from Edward Mendy, right? <laughs> Mendy, uh, who of course was the victorious goalkeeper at the recent uh, African Cup of Nations. Um, that where where Mo Salah didn't even get to take his penalty thanks to Mendy's uh, thanks to Mendy's work in the Senegal goal, um, and Tuchel decides to take him off. I mean, remember, Tuchel has first of all put Mendy in for this game uh, because you know in, in the competition that Kepa usually plays in. So first of all, Stoneheart uh, Tuchel has has said, okay, look, things have got serious now. There's a trophy at stake, and I'm obviously going to play my best goalkeeper. Uh, but then, uh, then right at the very end, his goalkeeper, having delivered a, f- a phenomenal performance, I mean, phenomenal is phenomenal too much. He made some great saves. There mm. was a obviously there was a there was a great save from Mane in the first half uh, when it really looked like a goal. In the second half, there was a header by Van Dijk that looked like this is this is going in the corner, and suddenly Mendy is there. Um, uh, you know, he didn't actually have much to do really in the second hour of the game because Chelsea Chelsea finished the game so much stronger uh, than Liverpool but that the fact that they got that they were in a position to take the game that far was was down to Mendy and so in the circumstances you think do I feel good about Mendy in this shootout you know I mean he's been unbeatable for these guys so far you know he's been saved from from several of these players and now they have to face him again 
No, Kepa's got a superior statistical record. So uh, he so he calls Kepa over. I mean, Chelsea had obviously done this before in the um, Super Cup final um, when Kepa, I think, saved a couple at Windsor Park, having come on just at the, you know. And, and uh, Tuchel said at that point, yeah, the, you know, this has been our policy since... Since the since the day one that I arrived, I mean the the approach for the shootouts is is simple. Um, it's you know who's got the best record of penalties. And I saw I think it was Gare Jordan had had looked at the stats and the stats were like uh, thirty penalties out of thirty two scored against Mendy, and seventeen out of twenty four scored against Kepa. So um, these are not these are not counting shootout penalties. These are counting normal penalties what, what, yeah. whatever you call them penalties in the match so Kep has clearly got a better record uh, in, in terms of in so far as you can sort of pronounce a verdict from sample size is this you know th- these are the samples we have to work with and Kepa seems to be better so we'll put him on and in so doing he sort of just ignored the fact that Mendy was having a great game <laughs> which which I think to to a human being like Jurgen Klopp <laughs> would you know do you think Jurgen Klopp would have do you think he would have been shuffling through the, you know, spreadsheets, or would he simply have looked like through his blinked away his own tears and looked into the glistening tear streak, tear tear filled eyes of both his goalkeepers and said, "I'm gonna go with the one of you that I promised I'd leave on the pitch, no matter what." And of course, uh, in Klopp's case, uh, his goalkeeper didn't save any penalties either, <laughs> but. Uh, but uh, he used to play in midfield, Quiven Keller, and uh, and he showed a cultured uh, midfielder's touch in dispatching his penalty high into the Chelsea net. Rory Smith of the New York Times on the show today with Jonathan Wilson to talk a little bit about the cup final, but mostly about the war in Ukraine and its consequences for Roman Abramovich and for FIFA, among others. As always, loads more football coverage on the World Service over the course of the week. If you fancy signing up on secondcaptains.com for five euro a month plus fat. Don't forget, March is all about our Gangs All Here shows in Liberty Hall with thanks to O'Hara's Irish Craft Beers. If you have a ticket for any of the six nights that we're going to be putting on over the course of the next month, we will be mailing you today with some details so if you are a ticket holder keep an eye out for uh, an email popping in at some stage today Ken could you please report on sport yeah and, uh, Roman Abramovich has been uh, trending on Twitter uh, for the last several days which is not a not not a place that he enjoys being um, and after the whole uh, issue last week where his, his name was being bandied about in the House of Commons uh, and uh, opposition MPs were wondering whether the government intended to sanction him. Um, uh, he did decide to, uh, I guess, try to get out ahead of this story or react to this by uh, that announcement on, on Saturday of handing over stewardship and care, mm. the stewardship and care of Chelsea to the uh, to the Chelsea Charitable Trust, uh, which since then the Daily Telegraph reported the Chelsea Charitable Trust is by no means sure that they want to take on this stewardship and care, whatever that in fact means. Um, as the first they heard about this was Saturday, and they're not quite sure what's involved, what's intended by it, or uh, to what extent they're getting dragged into a situation that's more complicated than any of them uh, understand right now. Mm. So so that was something, obviously, that happened over the weekend. We're going to be talking about that with, um, with Jonathan and Rory, although... Uh, since then, there has been a new piece of information from the desk of Abramovich, or rather from the desk of Roman Abramovich's spokesperson. Yeah, this has come in since we recorded the chat with, with the boys. It came in on under a, a very 
a dramatic headline. Uh, I see Nick Purewall, PA uh, media sports reporter for Chelsea. Um, this is the first I heard of the story. His tweet that said, Roman Abramovich is attempting to broker peace between Russia and Ukraine. His spokesperson has confirmed to PA Sport. Full story in the PA Sport War now. So the PA Sport War story, mm. this sounds pretty incredible. Yeah. Abramovich is brokering peace. Um, the story, you know, I, I, I don't know uh, if ultimately this effort to broker peace is, is going to amount to, to a lot, but let's see what it says. It says, I can confirm that Roman Romich was contacted by the Ukrainian side for support in achieving a peaceful resolution that he has been trying to help ever since. Considering what is at stake, we would ask for your understanding as to why we have not commented on neither the situation as such nor his involvement. Thank you. That was... Abramovich's spokesman. Uh, the piece also quotes Ukrainian film director and producer Alexander Rodnyansky, who said, I can confirm the Ukrainian side have been trying to find someone in Russia willing to help them in finding a peaceful resolution. They are connected to Roman Ab Abramovich through the Jewish community and reached out to him for help. Roman Abramovich has been trying to mobilize support for a peaceful resolution ever since. Although Roman Abramovich's influence is limited, he's the only one who responded and has taken it upon himself to try. Uh, as to whether this will have an impact or not, I don't know, but I am in contact with Zelensky's staff myself. I know that they are grateful for his genuine efforts. So This would be a, a positive development, no? I wish Roman Abramovich every success uh, in his efforts uh, in this regard. I mean, in, in terms of the content of, of what's been done, it's, it's obviously it's hard to ascertain really from these statements um the spokesman does say please understand why we're not saying anything you know it's a can't you see that we're trying to bring peace uh, stop trying to get us to to take a position um so that is the most recent thing that has happened on the uh on the sort of abramovich thing we'll talk as we mentioned with uh with jonathan and rory about that whole issue what else is happening? Yeah, and, the, and we've got a fair bit on with the guys as well on FIFA as well, and you know what they what they need to do now, um, given well, the situation. Of, and just in terms of FIFA, um, Poland, the P Polish national team have have said it's totally unacceptable. This was basically FIFA's suggestion that po Poland said we're not playing them, um, we're not playing Russia. Um, you know, we, Lewandowski's statement was like, you know, we we know it's not the fault of Russian players and fans, but we can't pretend there's nothing going on. We're not going to play against Russia. Uh, Sweden and the Czech Republic said they're not going to play against Russia either, and, and they're all in the same World Cup playoff qualifying bracket. Um, the FIFA have since come out with this sort of proposal, which is a kind of an IOC type proposal, like you know the way Russia. Um, competes in the Olympics under like ROC or they, they make up a name you know the artist formerly known as Russia type type of situation and they and they and they don't play the anthems and all this and so sort of FIFA had kind of suggested basically this solution um, but Poland have have already come out and said no it's totally unacceptable to us like we're not playing them so uh, yeah we will talk about that Gazprom um, so Schalke uh, Schalke 04 the German club has announced that they they have cancelled their sponsorship deal with Gazprom. Gazprom was their um, shirt sponsor and has been their sponsor since 2007. Uh, more than more than 15 years. January 2007 is when they took over this um, sponsorship deal. So it's this this is one of the longest running sponsorship deals, I guess, in in Europe. 
um, and it's a, it's been very high profile for Gazprom really ever since it started because at the beginning it was uh, this is another this is actually another part of the legacy of the former German Chancellor Gerhard Schröder which has crumbled uh, because Schröder who after his time as uh, German uh, Chancellor where he he was he was one of these kind of third way uh, leaders who was like yes I'm socialist but of course I love business. Uh, I love cigars and I hate taxes. So, uh, you know, and I love gas. Uh, <laughs> you know, let's the cigar get that gas and the gas pumping. possibly yeah. separately, obviously. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's pump that gas. Uh, and he wants to, he was pumping gas uh, from this. Smoking this, this big is, cigars. This was his, <laughs> this his, his legacy. He, you know, literally since he. Um, since he left the, the job of German Chancellor, which he was succeeded by uh, Merkel in 2005, I guess, he then became, he, he, what his work since then has been about like, uh, has been on the Russian-German relationship, specifically the uh, fossil fuel uh, buying and selling relationship, you know, Nord Stream 2 and all this kind of stuff, which has which has now been, been put on hold by or suspended by Germany and everything is looking pretty much up in here in terms of that relationship and now um, Schroeder no doubt weeps as this uh, as Gazprom will no longer adorn the, adorn the shirts of Schalke uh, which is not his team he is in fact a Borussia Dortmund fan to the extent that he you know supports anybody it's Dortmund uh, and and yet he passed them Gazprom as a he passed Gazprom as a sponsor to um or directed Gazprom, I should say, I suppose, to uh, to their uh, big rivals. Their big rivals in the roar. Uh, but that's all over. Uh, nothing uh, lasts forever. Um, so, yeah. And what else is going on? Nothing lasts forever. Um, if only the reign of Marcelo Bielsa at Leeds United could have lasted forever. But unfortunately, there are only a certain amount of goals that you can let in before people start to become angry and confused I've never seen such a reaction to a manager leaving a club well I probably have maybe Alex Ferguson or something but the amount of stuff from Leeds fans about this guy changed my life I've seen a few different people say this you know this guy made me fall back as in I was done with football and then Marcelo Bielsa came in and now I love it again or you know, myself, my wife, met him, met him one day, and we'll remember for, forever. It's just so almost overpoweringly uh, heartfelt and emotional from the Leeds fans. They really do love this guy. And in fairness, it wasn't. It also wasn't one of these Wenger ones where they'd been calling for him to go for five years and then have to remember that they actually used to like him. In this case, it seemed anyway that, that you know that everyone was respectful of him, even though they probably knew <laughs> it was coming towards an end. Well, you know, I mean, it had stopped working, and I mean, and I think the injuries that Leeds have had this season are a huge part of that. I mean, you could see they, you know, the the game against Tottenham when it was so. I, I've I've seldom felt more confident about the result of the game before it was played. You know, um, as as watching watching that. Um, Leeds Tottenham game. I mean, I didn't having seen both of their recent games, and another Tottenham uh, obviously didn't. Uh, Tottenham didn't have a great uh, didn't have a great run out the, the previous time, but Leeds were just so poor um, against Liverpool and before that against Man United. I mean, just look at the results. Like the, the Leeds results are like uh, 
Four uh, nil against Tottenham. Six nil against Liverpool. Four two against Manchester United. Three nil against Everton. I mean, that was against Lampard. You know, that's painful. Three all against Villa. One nil. They lost to Newcastle. Three two against West Ham. Um, three one against Burnley. Four one. They lost to Arsenal. Seven nil. They lost to Man City. I mean, that was kind of that was traumatic. I remember the City game. This, the 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 week of City and Arsenal was, I think, a week when was a pivotal week, and that was a week when they had these kind of coronavirus problems. Remember, there was a lot of games being postponed around that time, but Leeds didn't postpone. Um, Leeds didn't postpone these games and ended up suffering badly, and I think kind of knocked them into a bit of a tailspin after that. Because before then, even though they had injuries, the results were kind of more normal. But suddenly they just started letting in a lot of goals. So I saw Duncan Alexander saying they, they had broken the record for goals conceded in a month in the Premier League. Uh, in the shortest month, February, although they did have um, they did have five games, which is a, a fair amount of games have a month, but 20 goals conceded uh, in five matches. Not good. Um... I saw a lot of the, so, you know, there's obviously criticism of Bielsa for, this is even before, you know, it was confirmed, but criticism of him in the last number of games for not compromising his principles. You know, they were saying this on Match of the Day on Saturday, you know, I, I, there's an arrogance. One of the, I can't remember which point it was, said there's an arrogance to the way he's gone about it, that he's just continued to play this man-on-man stuff and not respecting the the quality of the opposition and that they're going to continue to hammer you if you do this. But was this not all the exact same stuff that we were praising him for, for the, you know, 95% of his time in charge of Leeds? Yeah, I mean, even in his interview after the game, you know, and his interviews, it's not like his interviews are, are ever that good because he, he always is doing them slowly through the translator. And to be honest, I, I'm always kind of like, come on, come they're on. Pain, they're painful. Get, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, and, and even though, but like in this on this occasion, I was I was kind of uh, watching uh, and, and waiting to listen to what he said. And he and he made, he makes logical points, like which you seldom hear from managers. <laughs> Where, so his point was like, yeah, uh, or you know the the interviewer was asking him stuff like, "Look, you know, for for God's sake, Marcelo, we've let it, you know we've let in so many goals. Like, what's going on?" And he's like, "You know, it seems to me you're suggesting that we should play more of the game in our own half, uh, which is a recourse that we have uh, not we have not really had we have not used uh, in my time here. Uh, it's not something that we have done. Uh, and at times of crisis, um, when the results are bad." Uh, always uh, the thing that is not done uh, is said to be the solution. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, and, and you're like, yeah, I mean, this is true. What, and like what, what Marcel Bielsa has been the most successful Leeds manager since, I, I suppose I have to say, David O'Leary. You know, Dave, Dave O'Leary is the last successful Leeds manager. And David O'Leary's success was built on, as Putin might say, an empire of lies. Lies to ourselves about what is financially possible at this club. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was, let's say it was fueled by this uh, unsustainable spending, which Leeds uh, were paying for in many senses for, for many years after that. And he came into this club... And without really spending a gigantic amount of money compared to any of the rivals in the championship, uh, he completely transforms the style of play. Uh, he he transforms completely the atmosphere around the club. I and mean, I still remember watching the playoff, Leeds Derby, which they lost, of course, to Lampard, sickeningly. But the but the atmosphere at Ellen Road for this game was just incredible. Like it was it was like you know. Uh, 
I think we all tuned in for that one, to be fair. Yeah, that was, was you know, absolutely insane. It was Bombonera. You know what I mean? The Ellen Road Bombonera. Like, everyone's going nuts. Like, uh, the scarves. They, they, he had kind of turned it into a, a crazy South American stadium. Obviously, they lost. But then they, they came back and won the next year. Um, got into And the, the great sadness of it is that the crowd wasn't there for the return to the Premier League because they did have a really good season last year. You know, when, when they didn't have these injuries, you know, they had Bamford scoring like quite regularly. Uh, they had some great results. I mean, they beat Man City, remember? Um, they were great. Uh, there, there would have been some fantastic atmospheres. There would have been some really memorable football days and instead it was empty stadiums. And a team like that with this, you know, with that, with that sort of style, which is all about, uh, you know, intensity and energy, you need that kind of. I mean, no, the, the crowds, the 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 form has collapsed as the crowds have returned. But I think there, there's always maybe a time limit to these things, and the injuries have been a have been a problem. And it's just unlucky that it didn't really get to, uh, you know, that they didn't get to really enjoy it as they as they could have enjoyed it last year. Um, but hopefully, he leaves them in a better position, at least than David O'Leary did. And uh, they won't just, you know, anvil out of the Premier League this year. And it's when you see messages like the one from Calvin Phillips. Thank you, Mars. Um, Calvin Phillips, obviously, who was one of the players sitting there with Bamford uh, in the stands watching this 4-0 defeat against Tottenham because he's injured. Thank you, Marcelo, for everything you've done for me. You saw in me what I didn't even see in myself. You helped me grow as a player, but most importantly, as a person. Wishing you all the best in your next chapter. Gracias, Marcelo. Vamos, Leeds, carajo. The Leeds Carajo because of the video, the famous video of Marcel Bielsa in his Newell's Oh Boy days screaming, Newell's, Newell's Carajo, Newell's Carajo. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that on, but it's worth no. a look if you haven't seen it. No? Newell's Carajo. I've Carajo seen is, one where, where he's being chaired off. There's, there's one where a bunch of supporters think are chairing. Anyway, sorry, what, what was he saying in this one? Um, he's screaming Newell's, Newell's Caraco, Newell's Caraco, and uh, and waving his uh, scarf around. Uh, Caraco is, I mean, Caraco's a swear word. It's, it means, it, obviously it makes no sense to say fuck Newell's, but it, maybe, maybe, maybe the translation of it would be to say Newell's, comma, fuck <laughs> <laughs> like whoa the colors do a lot of heavy lifting Nils, there amazing <laughs> yeah uh so uh, so leeds caraco uh will always be remembered for yeah bielsa but uh i mean calvin phillips it's just unfortunate he did the job too well with calvin phillips if phillips hadn't been playing for england all summer then maybe he would have been fit to play for leeds uh and marcel bielsa would still be managing uh, would still be running the team as a result of them being 10 or 15 points further up in the table. But unfortunately, that is not the case. For fuck's sake. We, we need to get back to facts here because there seems to be a bit of emotion creeping in. What you've just said really isn't true. Well, no. No, what I said. I'm not saying... I don't know what you're saying, to be honest with you. Okay. I mean, I, I, all I Make this if point. Got, if you found someone I on the street... You already you interviewed me. He's a goat, he's a god, he's a man, he's a Everybody would think that the appointment of Jose Mourinho would have been a great appointment for Manchester United to win trophies. 
that they would win trophies under Jose Mourinho. Well, I don't think everybody would have thought that, but I think somebody who didn't know a lot about football would have thought that. What, the Manchester United? Jose Mourinho? Yeah. You cheeky bastard, for fuck's sake. You cheeky bastard, for fuck's sake. You cheeky bastard, for fuck's sake. Jonathan Wilson in this week with Rory Smith of the New York Times. How are you, Jonathan? Yeah, very well, thanks. How are you? Good, good. Rory, hope you're keeping well. I'm all right. Yeah, not bad. We're going to talk, to be honest, just a little bit of football, really. There are bigger things going on in the world, which we will get to. But I do want to start with Cuevin Kelleher and ask you the question, Jonathan. Is this academy product from Cork through Liverpool a better goalkeeper than Kepa, the world's most expensive player in that position? Goalkeeper. Uh, goalkeeper, I should say. It'd be very specific there. I should say world's most expensive goalkeeper. Is Cuevin Keller a better keeper? Um, he's certainly better at taking penalties. I don't know if that's necessarily the first... Give the crowd what they want, Jonathan. <laughs> yes, he's, he's the greatest goalkeeper I've ever seen. Uh, no, no, I mean, look, he had a great game. He, you know, that, that, that save early on from Pulisic was, was exceptional. He made a couple of other really good saves. Mendy also made a series of very good saves. Um, and, and yeah, look, he, his penalty was an exceptional penalty. It was, uh, you know, all, almost of Kevin Pressman levels of being mm-hmm. kicked really hard. Um, and I guess you know, his, his extraordinary presence in goal led to Kepper smashing it over the sand. Uh, it was the puff of the cheeks after Keller. You know, there is an argument, I guess, Rory, that, that really a goalkeeper should be saving one of 11 penalties that they face as well. But, I mean, nobody in Ireland really cares about that this morning, I have to say. Everyone's just delighted for Cuevin Keller, who's, who's been patient there. I mean, there's always talk of whether or not he should go elsewhere or go on loan or all these kind of things. But I guess if you can pick off moments like that, uh, it's, not a, it's not a bad way to make a living. Yeah, at the moment it works for everybody, doesn't it? Because he, he's obviously made a choice that it's better for him to be kind of the League Cup goalkeeper at Liverpool or the League Cup and FA Cup goalkeeper at Liverpool than it is to be playing, I guess, lower down the Premier League or, or maybe in the Championship. I'm not entirely sure where he would end up if, if Liverpool would say, OK, you can go and we will we'll accept a reasonable fee for you. Um, and for Liverpool, they get kind of a that that kind of unicorn thing of, of having a really good second-choice goalkeeper who the defence seemed to trust, who doesn't seem to be kind of continually kicking up a fuss about not playing as much as they feel they ought to, and who can stand in whenever Alisson is injured or suspended or in need of a break. And I think it, it won't last. At some point, Kelleher, I guess, will think that he, he wants to play regularly, and he's from what we've seen over the last two years he's, he's definitely good enough to play regularly in in the Premier League um, but as things stand it's it works for everyone and the thing that struck me yesterday I hate that move of bringing on a goalkeeper a goalkeeper to save penalties yeah. I think it it has worked once in recorded history that's the um, Van Gaal and the, the Van Hal. and I don't even know how much that that worked because there's, an, there's obviously an element of psychological trickery about it that it's kind of saying, oh, we've got a guy who's going to save all your penalties. And maybe that gives you a bit of an edge. Maybe it doesn't. I mean, Jasper Sillison, who's the goalkeeper who Cruel came on for, is really bad at saving penalties. He's sort of David De Gea bad at saving penalties. So I can see why Holland did it. I can't think of of any other example where it's, it's had the desired effect. Well, it worked, well, Kepa himself didn't, it didn't work for Chelsea before in the World Club Cup. So I think that might be where... Yeah, where, yeah, possibly where it's coming from. So it's, it, but the, the, watching Kepa yesterday, it wasn't just that that he didn't save any penalties; it's that he didn't get close to saving any penalties. Keller had this is going to sound like a criticism, and I don't want to alienate the audience. There were two or three that Keller might have saved. I think that that 
it's difficult with penalties because sometimes when a goalkeeper gets a hand on them, it makes you think, oh, he should have saved that, when in, when in reality they've just done really well to get a hand on it. I think there were a couple that Kelleher maybe would have been disappointed with. But the fact that, that Kepa just didn't seem to be capable of saving any was genuinely astounding. And I really like Thomas Tuchel. I think he's a brilliant coach. I think he seemed like a really nice man. But in, in a sense, I'm, I'm pleased that it happened because hopefully it, it won't now become one of those things that clever managers do. Mm-hmm. Mendy had had a brilliant game. He's a world-class goalkeeper, probably the most informed goalkeeper in the world. Why on earth do you take him off the pitch? Jonathan, Liverpool are now, what, in the last 50 games in all competitions? Is this right, right, Ken? They've lost two games. Yeah, I think so. 50. I think they've, they've lost to West Ham and West Ham, who I think they're playing this weekend, and Leicester are the two teams that have beaten them since April. Which is fairly extraordinary stuff, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, they're playing really, really well at the minute. Um, and, and, you know, we know that from the title race, a title race that looked to be over. Manchester City have dropped five points in 21 games now, I think. And yet somehow <laughs> the gap's being closed. Um, so, yeah, they, 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 they are playing brilliantly. Um, you know, they, they, they could conceivably win a quadruple this season. I, I'm pretty sure they won't. But, yeah, they're the only team in England who can do that. Yeah. Do you think that they are that this is as good as we've seen from this team? I mean, cause, you know, cause they have had some pretty, pretty impressive runs of form uh, over the last couple of seasons. Um, but this is uh, this is this is pretty remarkable. And what what impresses me about this is the way that they seem to have options. I mean, even yesterday when you know Thiago blew up in the in the warm up, you know they they, they they were fun. They were not only able to bring on. Uh, to bring in a, a good immediate replacement into the first team. But they were able to bring in a replacement into the squad, Harvey Elliott, who also, well, although he, he maybe didn't have the greatest game yesterday, um, who also looks like he could be a really top player. I mean, I, I remember watching Liverpool in the Champions League final uh, in Kiev a couple of years ago, and they had nothing. They had absolutely nothing once once they started to have problems on the pitch. You know, when Salah was injured, there was there was no reserves. And now they they seem to have options everywhere. Yeah, I think that's the point that they have got far greater depth than they've ever had. Um, you know, who, who's the better centre back? Is it Matip? Is it Konate? I, I, it's very hard to tell. Simicus is is done very well. Deputising for Robertson, um, midfield they've got loads of options. The front, yeah, it's the front five now from which they can perm three. So that game against Inter, although it was Firmino and Salah who got the goals, the the sort of traditional front three were never on the pitch at the same time. So yeah, they 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 have got options there that that they've never had before, and I. I think that's why uh, there can be a reasonable expectation that this this will be a title race. It goes at least till they they play City on I think it's is it April the ninth that game, mm. and and you know for, as a from a neutral's point of view, from somebody who just wants to be entertained and wants to to see sort of meaningful football, that is a much better situation than it looked like we would be going to be facing uh, sort of tail end of December when Liverpool were going into that period where although there's only two league games. Uh, they're going to be without uh, Salah, without Mane, without Keita for the duration of the Cup of Nations. Uh, and and we sort of thought that that might be when when they'd feel the pinch. But yeah, bringing in Diaz in that time, uh, albeit I think probably six months earlier than they intended to bring him in, that, you know, that, that already looks like a triumph. What about the bigger picture here, Rory? I'm not talking about the title race here. I'm talking about what's been going on even around this game and, and Chelsea as a club, Abramovich trying to hand the stewardship and care of Chelsea to the charitable trust. I mean, everyone's been trying to parse that statement for the last two days. What was your reaction when you heard that? 
massive shock to be honest because i didn't i didn't see it coming and then you kind of wheel through the the options of what it means and i think the consensus now and it, it makes sense not i don't think any of us fully understand the ramifications of it um it doesn't make any short-term difference it isn't it isn't a legal thing i think stewardship doesn't have any legal meaning and i'm not sure care does either in this con in this context um so it doesn't change the fact that abramovich is the owner of chelsea that he is the the person of significant control which is what matters to the premier league um he makes all the decisions he still you know he still owns he still has the he bankrolls it effectively, although Chelsea obviously are self-sufficient um, in a lot of ways, although that does involve taking out, just ignoring the massive debts to the owner. Uh, it, so it doesn't change anything, I think, in that sense. In the short term, Chelsea will still be able to pay their players, they'll still be able to continue as normal. Um, I don't know, though, whether it has any impact on what happens if Abramovich is, is the subject of sanctions, which obviously he hasn't been yet. Um, I'm not sure how likely, likely that is. You'd have to ask the British government. Um, but if he is, I think, um, from what I've read, from what from what I've heard, because he remains the owner and the person of significant control, the fact that he's made what is very clearly, I think, a gesture to try and insulate Chelsea a little bit from the, broad, from the noise, from the situation, and potentially from anything more serious in terms of sanctions. I don't know if it worked because he is still the person of significant control. So I, I think it's an in, it was an interesting development. It, it shows, I think that Abramovich is taking the threat of sanctions seriously. I think if there was no threat of sanctions, I don't think he would have done this if Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine. Um, I don't think this was part of his long-term plan. So he's clearly thinking that, that he needs to protect the club in some way or do what he can to to shield the club, at least for, for the time being. Um, but equally, I'm not entirely sure it will have that effect if it comes to it, that, that if the British government does decide to freeze his assets, I suspect you can make a case that Chelsea is still one of them. I saw the uh, I saw Gary Neville on TV before the game, Jonathan, talking about... He, he said something interesting. He said uh, he, he was kind of quite scornful towards uh, what, you know, what Abramovich had done, the, the stewardship and care stuff, and, and scornful also towards the Chelsea statement. And he said, essentially, that he expects Abramovich should have, you know should have basically said exactly what he felt about the invasion of Ukraine, that he should have either condemned it or announced that he supported it. Uh, do you think that's a, is, is, do you think it's reasonable to, to think that he should have done that? No, not at all. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously we've got to be extremely careful what we say about this, given how litigious Abramovich is and how mm. he has recently fought a, a libel action against Harper Collins for, for, uh, Catherine Belton's book, Putin's People. But I, I would imagine oligarchs in general are considering their positions very carefully. Um, I think there was a meeting in the Urals tail end of last week, uh, which was referred to by, by that Estonian former defence minister, uh, which the oligarchs were sort of considering what their next step should be. Um, yeah, I think you've got to be realistic that uh, he... Yeah, it might, it might be might be nice for us and nice for Chelsea fans to, to, to find out what he thinks. But yeah, he, he's, he's playing a very complicated and very difficult political game and he's not going to reveal anything until he's absolutely ready. Do you think it's a problem, Rory, that... I mean, the, the essential problem, is, as I would understand it, is that it, to say he supported the invasion is politically unacceptable in uh, the country Chelsea's based in. Uh, and to say that he condemns it is politically unacceptable in, in his home country 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether I I care about what Roman Romanovich thinks about the war, to be perfectly honest. I think that is... I know what you mean, and I, I, there's an element of Gary Neville... This isn't really meant as a criticism of him, but there's a, like, there's a reason we don't get football pundits to, to cover politics. He's and a that, politician as well, though. That uh, He is increasingly a politician. The I'm not sure that the kind of... He's got to come out and say who his first choice goalkeeper is applies to Roman Abramovich's view of 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 geopolitical conflict. And like he doesn't. I mean, I, I don't think to an extent. Like I don't think his what Abramovich thinks of it is relevant. And also, I don't think it, it's difficult to predict. He thinks he, his decision will be driven by what's best for him. I would have thought that he will look at it will be a balancing act between the economic impact on his his businesses and his his world. Uh, I'm sure with some touch of humanitarian concern, I don't think he, he's he's immune to that. Um, combined with a need to balance, as what Jonathan refers, you know, says quite rightly, is the delicate political situation at home. Just the, you know, and, again, we can, we have to be careful, but it, it's not great for an oligarch to go to go against the Russian government, the Russian state. That's not that's not a brilliant position to be in. So I don't know whether he needs to come. I, I didn't read that statement. Think you know, it's a real shame. I don't know what Roman Abramovich thinks about this war. Um, I think that it was more more significant that that it was a sign that he's he's obviously conscious that sanctions might be coming. There's no, there, there is no, I don't think there's any other way of reading it than he thinks this this is a possibility. Well, he felt he, he clearly felt that he had to respond to to a let's say dynamic situation. I, don't, I mean, I don't I don't think he's been influenced particularly by the kind of. I can't imagine Abramovich would have been been influenced by the the, the desire to, to kind of protect Chelsea from criticism. I don't think that's what he's done it for. I suspect it's more serious than that. That he he thinks there's a possibility it's, it will be frozen, and he doesn't want that want that want that to happen. Because I think, and this this is not in any way a defence of the Russian oligarchy, but I think that Abramovich does genuinely care about Chelsea. I I I don't see it as just a kind of it has other purposes, but he does clearly care about the club and I think he's trying to protect it a little bit but also to protect his own position um, so whether he is pro or anti-war I don't think is really the central issue it's interesting though that you say I mean you said at one point I don't you know I don't really care what Abramovich's view is and you know in one sense like um, I mean in the sense in which in his capacity as Chelsea owner he's he's sort of a private individual and okay he, he doesn't necessarily have to issue um, statements on things as though he was an embassy. But we do find ourselves in this in the strange position now where football clubs are doing that. You know, I mean, Chelsea issued a, literally the, the tweet said, club statement on the conflict in Ukraine. You know, it, it's it's a kind of, it's just a, such a, I just thought that this is such a strange thing to see. Uh, and, and, you know, they said, I mean, and, and actually what happened was that, that they were criticized because their their statement was like this kind of, weasel words uh, the situation is horrific and devastating you know the, the language it didn't say it was an invasion and so on and so forth so they were they were sort of attacked for the for the political content or absence maybe of political content uh, in the statement um the, you know this, this is sort of a football club the the the, the fa the fa issued uh, a statement um the FA said, let me find it, out of solidarity with Ukraine, they said the Ukraine in the initial statement, but they said out of solidarity with Ukraine and to solidarity condemn the atrocities being committed by the Russian leadership, the FA can confirm we won't play against Russia in any international fixtures. You know, so uh, we are, we do uh, live in a in a society when, <laughs> right now, when actually these sort of entities, club owners or, or people with a high profile, people with a high profile in this, you know, high profile sport are actually expected 
to take positions on these things. Yeah, and there's, there's, as far as I can tell, I'm, I'm only clever enough to kind of discern three things at play. One is, it's like take culture in general, that you, you have to say something, everyone has to say something. You know, every, it's expected that everyone on every issue has a social media platform that they use to express their opinion and their, and their solidarity or their sympathy or whatever it is. One is, is that that's particularly true of football. Football generally feels it has to speak about these issues and often it's right that it's just football has a major social power. And the other thing is that football has got itself into this position where it is it's it's affected by these things. So I I wrote a column on on Friday about about the kind of the football and impact of the war the war in Ukraine. And you feel stupid doing it because you it it's kind of football war. Let's talk about over. this really trivial aspect yeah, of this like, massive disaster. It, yeah, yeah. It's not a football story. And you see you see all this content that's poured out almost as though this is right. Here's another storyline. Football and war. Let's do that. And it's you feel really glib and heartless doing it as though you're leveraging the you know, the the misery of forty four million people for for your own clicky gain. But at the same time, football has walked itself into this position over the last twenty years particularly, where it is it's it's part of this story because I think Barney Roney in The Guardian wrote a great piece about the sort of Russian sports washing process of, of the 2018 World Cup, of Gazprom sponsoring the Champions League, of, of Rus- Russian backing for, for certain clubs. We, we can't specify which ones because people get very, very cross and very suey when, when you suggest that there's ulterior motives. But certainly, you know, the, the amount of Russian money within football itself is significant. Football has allowed itself to be used as a vehicle to burnish the image of Russia in general. Yeah, as, I mean, there was a really interesting piece by Barney Rone. The, the headline was UEFA and FIFA are too late. Russia's sports washing has already, has served its purpose. So whatever UEFA and FIFA, whatever statements they put out now, whatever they choose to do, whatever symbolic stuff there is, they've actually allowed Putin's sports washing. And not just them. I mean, you look further afield at the Olympics and, 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 and yeah. sport in general has allowed uh, Russia to take all the benefits that we know seem to accrue from sports washing and that's what happened over a number of years but, but there's a couple of things to be said about this. so so the first is you, you, we've obviously in the last 20 years or so moved into a new phase of this in terms of ownership of clubs but this isn't fundamentally different to what Mussolini was doing in the 30s you know the, the Italy's World Cup victories were supposed to be a sign of Italy's um you know vigor yes yeah, it's it sort of thrusting muscularity and success and power and, and of, of Italy being, um, you know, a serious player on the world stage, so so, so, so that hasn't particularly changed. But I also think there's a, there's an irony here, uh, which is that um, your yeah, football does have, almost by accident, it has this this power. Um, so to, to to take a you know a, a slightly different example, if if you if you just went out into the street whether it be in, in London or in Leeds or in, in Dublin, wherever, and just grabbed a random person and said, tell me something a Senegalese man has done. And you know, I, I think most people, if they could think of anything, it would be maybe Sadio Mane, maybe Papa Boobjop scoring against France in 2002. So the most famous thing in that country's history to the, the most of the world, I'm not saying the most important thing, but the most famous thing, the best known thing, is is football so football does have that power it is that stage and that's why you know, when i've when i've talked to ukrainians in the last few days a lot of them say you know seeing people with ukrainian flags at football matches that that does resonate 
And it does sort of show we're not alone. And so, you know, think back to um, Poland, for instance, used this. So uh, well, after Lechowensa had gone to hiding, when he, when he came out of hiding, his first appearance was at a Lechia Gdansk game. Now, Lechowensa hates football. He thinks it's ridiculous. He, he, he hates the fact that it has this power. But that was where he chose to be seen. They were, they were playing Juventus in a couple of scop tie. Um, and he knew that although the Polish TV would shut it down, he'd be seen live on Rai in Italy. And that was a sign, yeah, he's still there. Uh, the 82 World Cup, you had people unveiling Solidarność banners uh, and Polish transmission had to be delayed by, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes so they could black it all out in the, in the stands so you couldn't see it. But even that looks ridiculous and people in Poland knew what that was. So that's still offering soccer to people who are being repressed by the regime. So, you know, football is absurd in many ways and it's been manipulated in many ways, but it does have this, this sort of indirect power. And also, you know, I think... Why do, we, why do we care about Ukraine? Why do we know about Ukraine? For most people, it is through Donor Kiev and Shakhtar. It is through Andriy Shevchenko. And so that is evidence of a soft power, the inadvertent soft power of football, that it, it, it gives us an immediate context for Ukraine that maybe we don't have for, for instance, Yemen. And, and that's that's what's really important, that football has used that soft power. It's monetized that soft power over the last 20 years. It's done everything it, it can, whether it's clubs or leagues or, or federations. It's done everything it can to monetize that soft power, which I agree with Jonathan is, is accidental. I think it, it was accrued organically because of the popularity of the sport. And then kind of post-Berlusconi, you get this move to, to politicize it, to monetize it, to, to leverage it in some way. Well, and, and it is global in a way that pretty much nothing else is. Yeah, and I, 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 I've had this debate before that you, you can make the case that just in terms of numbers, Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi are the two most famous people who have ever lived in terms of the number of people who've, who've heard, who are currently alive, who have heard of them. It, you know, it, it, they would rival religious figures, which is astonishing, really. But the, the flip side of that is that, you, fine, you spend 20 years like mining it for every single little bit of money that you can. It's, it's gauche and it's disgusting and I think most of us kind of sit very uneasily with it. The flip side is that now you have a chance to use that power to, to exert pressure. We know that sporting boycotts and cultural boycotts work in a way that economic sanctions can but don't always because, you know, I've read Putin's people, I'm not going not to regurgitate the controversial bits, but it's pretty clear that the, the people who've been sanctioned already have a lot of money that can't be traced. There is, there, there, it's going to be extremely difficult to, to clamp down on every single outlet they have for their money, even if you have like a broad international coalition doing it. A sporting sanction is a way of saying to the people of that country, without making them suffer in any real way, the rest of the world is not on board with what your with what your president is doing, with what your state is doing. That we do not agree with this, and it's not just the you know the the great infidel in the West. It's not just America and, and Britain and the EU. It's kind of broader than that. You know, we've seen powerful statements from Kenya condemning the Russian aggression, and I think that football now has a duty, having spent twenty years hawking itself to the highest bidder, regardless of morals, to say there is a line. And we have drawn it. We will not play you. You cannot. You cannot have this game, which is you know based on kind of international collective joy. You are not allowed this until your your government stops doing this thing that it's doing. And I think that is that is football's not just opportunity. I think it's 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 its moral duty to mm. to 
not just to have this kind of, well, you know, the Russians will have to play as the RFU, and then you know, you don't don't turn them into like the pro evolution soccer version of Russia without the rights. Like, say you, you, they cannot play. Their clubs cannot play. There is no Russia at the World Cup. There is no Spartak Moscow in the Europa League. There is no Russia in the Women's Euros. You do not have a place in the international body of sport until you you. How do I, I mean? I don't even know how to put it. Be, you do not have a place in the international body of sport because of your government's actions. Is is it all after? Is it all a little bit after after the horse has bolted though? There, you, you, well, well, it's but it's not the horse hasn't bolted. The horse hasn't, hasn't hasn't bolted yet. I mean, FIFA haven't done this. You know, like you've, you 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 no, mentioned I mean the horse, Kenya. Uh, horse bolted as in as in Putin has got what he needed from from sport over the last decade or so. And uh, as argued in Barney in Barney Rone's piece, and everything that happens from here, I'm not saying okay, well then just don't bother make, doing any, you know, putting any sanctions in place or making any sort of stands. But uh, is there an element of it being too little, too late? Yeah, just, to an extent, that football has been complicit in allowing Russia to to gather the strength that it that it has and to to embed itself, I guess, in our in a, in our economies in the way that it has. Football has been at least in part a vehicle for that, and you can't you can't go back in time and ch- you know you can't turn the clock back. You can't change it. But I, Putin hasn't got what he wanted from this illegal invasion yet. Mm. He's not. He, this hasn't played out. We know as as he thought it was going to, and. Even if you know there comes a point where Kiev falls and Zelensky has to flee or, or whatever happens, he still has to govern the country. Like I, I, I don't, I'm not nearly clever enough to work out what the hell his plan is. Like he's going to put a puppet in, and we're all meant to be, be like, oh yeah, that guy's in charge of Ukraine now. But if you say, okay, well this this has happened, and the the, the, the sanctions and the consequences, the sporting consequences are long lasting, then that does do, go some way to to making it clear that things are not okay. And I think that's the power that. The sport in general has, and the, fo- the football in particular has, and that, that is something the international community has to has to use. Well, well, you, me- you, mentioned, you, you mentioned there, Kenya. You mentioned Kenya at one point there. You know that they're actually suspended from international football at the moment. Kenya have been yeah, yeah, Kenya yeah. have been suspended because the government is interfering in the affairs of the football association. I think by disbanding it. But I couldn't help noticing that FIFA have suspended Kenya and Zimbabwe the day after Russia invaded Ukraine. FIFA suspended Kenya and Zimbabwe for. Uh, government interference in the FA, but apparently government invasion of another FIFA member uh, issuing nuclear threats and destabilizing the world. Um, that's not FIFA's business. Jonathan, you wanted to come in? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of agree with fundamentally with all that, that, that Russia should be suspended. However, I do understand why FIFA is reluctant to arbitrate on, on what is egregious enough to, to warrant suspension. Um, and I know what about me is is sort of the, the the bane of social media that as soon as you say anything, as soon as you criticise anybody, it's oh, what about this? But here, in this instance, why is Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, why does that deserve suspension, but Saudi bombing of Yemen doesn't? And I think working out where that line is, is incredibly difficult. And I do understand why, why FIFA are very, very anxious. They don't want to get into a situation where every time there's any conflict they have to decide is this too bad so the situation is slightly different now to with yugoslavia in, in the early 90s when yugoslavia were the subject of un sanctions so fifa could say well the un's made the decision it's not us we're just acting on the un sanctions well that hasn't happened here so i i like i think fifa should suspend them i but i do understand their nervousness about doing that um and that has historically always been their position they they just want football to be played um and so 
I mean, there's, there's countless examples, but I think that maybe the, the you know the most pertinent one, given given the, the people involved, if you look back to 1973, when the Allende, when his his communist government in in, in Chile was overthrown by a CIA backed coup led by Pinochet, Chile played the Soviet Union in a World Cup playoff. And they, two weeks after the coup, they drew nil nil in Moscow. The second leg. Um, they wanted to play in the Estadio Nacional in Santiago, which was used as a torture and detention centre and killing centre by the Pinochet regime. The FIFA delegate who went to check if the stadium was safe, while he was there, there were still 7,000 prisoners in the stadium. And yet FIFA said, no, the game should go ahead, and the Soviets refused to play, and Chile went to the World Cup as a result. So this is, a, again, it's a long-term thing that FIFA will not take an- action um, and I, I, as I say, I, I sort of, I think in this case they should, but I, I, I'm also very uneasy about being asked to arbitrate as to where that line is. Yeah, and I, I have some sympathy with that as well. That that there are that it, 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 these situations are complicated, and we shouldn't be expecting football federations or clubs or leagues to be taking the lead on foreign policy. That is an inherently absurd position for, for the world to be in where it felt at one point last week like there was more pressure on UEFA to move the Champions League final than on the EU or Britain to impose sanctions that it was it seemed more urgent that we didn't play the Champions League final in St Petersburg and that might just be because I follow a lot of football journalists on Twitter and they were giving themselves away but at the same time I have I have limited sympathy for any of these organizations because they have spent so long allowing themselves to be infused with money from plate money not necessarily from places but from people whose motives are very clearly not sporting so you kind of think well what do you think is going to happen we knew why russia wanted the world cup we know why gazprom sponsors the champions league we know all this stuff you can't then complain when it turns out that that leads you down quite a complicated road mm. well i mean I, it's just the, the image that i have is of uh is of um, Infantino sitting between the Saudi Crown Prince and the Russian president at the at the opening game of the World Cup in, in 2018. And I, I was watching that, I remember, at this open-air fan park in Moscow. And the way that the crowd laughed when you could see Infantino sort of giggling so obsequiously at, you know, at, it was just like... So, so when you've got that image in your head, you think, well, there's no way this guy is going to take action against against Putin. I mean, if you look at, if you if you Google Infantino and Putin, they've been together so many times. They've spent so much time together. Like, there's so, there's so many pictures of them together in so many different situations. So, okay, it seems he's, he's really reluctant to do anything. But, you know, Infantino could say, look, I, I am the president of FIFA. It's a global organization. I have to be realist. I can't arbitrate these things. That's actually not even my role. I'm not arrogant enough. I'm not arrogant enough to do that. He could say that. But he has a specific problem now. And the specific problem is Poland have said they're not going to play Russia. Poland are in a World Cup qualifier against Russia. They've said they're not going to play them. They don't care if it's uh, if it's a neutral venue. They don't care if the Russian team turns up in disguise. Uh, they, they, it doesn't matter to them. They're, they're not going to do it. Sweden and the Czech Republic are the two teams in the bracket who are going to play the winner of that Poland-Russia game, which apparently isn't going to happen. They've said they're not going to play uh, they're not going to play Russia either. They're not going to do it. So usually in football, if you've got uh, teams that won't fulfill a fixture, you award the fixture to the other team. What 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 is Infantino going to do about this very specific problem? Well, I, th- I mean, again, I get why that is the standard because you can't have teams just saying, well, we're not going to play until you reach a certain point. And this is that point. Um, I think Infantino's got no choice here because... 
how does this play out? He says, like, Russia go to the World Cup. Right, any European team, any UEFA team in that group with Russia is going to say, well, we're not going to play them in the World Cup. And, and so what happens? Will Russia win the World Cup by default or until they get beaten by maybe a South American team who don't, don't quite have the same, uh, the same view? Um, I mean, what, what should happen? Well, well, Bolsonaro actually has specifically said that he's not going to condemn the invasion. So, um, well, yeah, so maybe okay. he's playing the long game. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah, Brazil beat Russia in the World Cup final and every, everybody's happy. I mean, clearly that's not, not how it's going to play out. You, I mean, UEFA Nations and you know, the, the English FA yesterday came out with that statement that, that England will not play Russia at any level, which has potential consequences for the women's Euros later this summer, which Russia have qualified for and has to be played in England. But really, every UEFA nation should say, look, if, if, if you let Russia into the World Cup, if you let them go through this, this process of buys against um, Poland and then either Sweden or, or Czech Republic, we will boycott the World Cup. And, and th- this, is, this then plays into that much bigger uh, struggle between FIFA and UEFA, which we've seen over, I mean, a far more trivial issue, obviously, but over the, the biennial World Cup. Um, FIFA may have a vote in terms of African and Asian votes to, to get it through. Um, but if, if UEFA says no, and particularly given the relationship between UEFA and Commonwealth is, is pretty strong, with Commonwealth nations going to be in the, the next but one Nations League, but you, you can't have a World Cup without European nations and, and South American nations. That just doesn't make any sense. And if that happens, well, FIFA's dead. So it's, you know, eventually Infantino, as long as UEFA hold firm on this, and I don't see why they wouldn't. I'm sorry, I say UEFA, I mean the Western European UEFA nations. Then, yeah, Infantino has to back down and FIFA have to suspend Russia. There's no, there's no other way that it can play out. Rory, are you, is there anything over the last couple of days from the sporting world that you're uplifted about? You know, I don't know if you saw Roman Yeremchuk mm. for Benfica yesterday coming off the bench and we can actually, actually play a little bit of this. He, he comes off the bench and gets given the captain's armband and this is the reaction of the fans. Unbelievable, and he's obviously so emotional. We've seen this, we've seen a lot of emotion in the last few days on football pitches around Europe. The Zinchenko, Mikalenko moment at Goodison, but you know, then as as has been pointed out, the players there in that game are have doing their no war message. While uh, cities, uh, city bearing in mind their Abu Dhabi ownership, uh, it has been pointed out the UAE abstained from voting on the UN resolution telling Moscow to withdraw their troops immediately. So I don't know. It even feels like when there's moments of of uh, uplift, even those are are complicated by stuff going on by by wider forces. And that's that was at Goodison Park, home yeah. of a club with. I think I think the USM logo is on Goodison Park. It's definitely it on was. Was Adam Crafton tweeted yeah. that that picture. You could see the USM logo as the players are standing there with the Ukraine things. You could see the USM logo in the background. Yeah, and that's an, an oligarch who, again, I'm sure, insists that he has no ties to Putin, but has been named in in Parliament as a potential uh, target for sanctions. Uh, and as you say, Manchester City, who are owned by. As part of a well, I mean, how do you phrase this so you don't get shouted at by twenty five people online? It owned by a owned as part of a foreign policy strategy. It, I think that's probably fair to say about Manchester City. So again, you kind of think, well, the football has, has not slept walked. It's deliberately walked into this into this situation where everything is murky, where nothing is real and everything is possible, and. 
it's hard to have too too much sympathy. But I think on a on a human level, hmm. if you look at the you know the Ukrainian flags at the London Stadium with Yarmolenko's name on, and he's not Yarmolenko's not the most popular player at West Ham. Um, if you look at the reactions to Yarmolenko at, at, at the Stadio de Luz, if you look at the Ukrainian flags at Wembley from both Chelsea and Liverpool fans yesterday, Ukrainian flags across the continent. You look at the stadiums that have been lit up blue and yellow, which I know feels like one of those kind of empty Twitter gestures, but I I don't think it is. I think it is genuinely meaningful that yeah what can the people who own Eintracht Frankfurt Stadium do about a war in the Ukraine? Not very much, but you can show your support for Ukrainian people who are suffering. And I think there is something innately, and maybe slightly naively, I don't know, heartwarming about the fact that football on an organic level does tend to come quite, does tend to come together quite well on issues like this and show that it does have that kind of, that all the, all the, Although at kind of the the executive level, its morality is deeply questionable. I think on a on a more fundamental one, and not on every subject, it's nowhere near as united on things like racism. But on a more fundamental one, football does have a power to express its support and to speak with one voice, and that that is that is innately quite heartwarming. Rory, Jonathan, we'll try to leave this conversation on that on that broadly positive note. Listen, thanks a million, great stuff. Cheers, thanks. Cheers, take care. I said, Karen. It's Richard Keyes. Prehistoric banter. Please, it was just banter. It is not acceptable in a modern world. Do you have any regrets? None. There are some dark forces at work here. The eyes have it. The eyes have it. Unlocked. All right, Ken, we got to we got to wrap things up shortly because myself and Murph have a trip to make. We're going to be recording our latest episode of the Second Captain's Book Club. We're doing oh. Norman, yeah, doing Norman Mailer's The Fight, his classic account of the Rumble in the Jungle with Katrina Crow, who you might remember, uh, one of our favourite ever guests on our radio show. She's going to be the reviewer. And Katrina has promised cake, Murph, so we're getting hungry is what I'm saying. So if <laughs> I've, any, I've any, skipped lunch. Yeah. And yeah. I'm ready to rumble. If you would like to put us off further from our much much needed cake then please give us one more football story uh well just uh, i ha- haven't even been able to mention the um this the big scandal of the weekend though which was the uh, refereeing decisions at uh, goodison park and frank lampard was brave enough to say what we we're all thinking oh <laughs> at best incompetence at worst who can say <laughs> um but i mean this honestly was one of the most astonishing decisions that you'll see um, this Rodri, you know, and there was this nonsense being spoken about. Well, it touches the sleeve, and it's like the ball hits the ball hits Rodri in like the inside of his elbow. That isn't that is going to be a handball. It doesn't matter that his sleeve is there. It's like you know the ball has to cross the entire sleeve before it's considered a handball. Like the, the whole of the ball has to has to cross <laughs> the sleeve. You know, that's that's absolute nonsense. Like I've never heard such nonsense. And it was like it was one of those where the the ball is sort of moving so slowly that it's immediately obvious to everyone in in real time, except maybe the referee who's at an angle where it's a little awkward for him to see. He's waiting for his VAR to confirm, you know, whether what everyone seems to be reacting to doesn't does in fact happen, and they don't even end up they they don't even end up looking at it. So I mean, that is just it's really the decisions thank. I mean, I I don't know mm. what what you can say about this, but I think this is this is something Owen, which I I don't I don't want to pat myself on the back here, right? But I think any any idiot 
including me, could have told you this was what was going to happen with VAR. You were going to get situations where decisions which could have been put down to incompetence or I, I didn't see it or I happened to blink at the wrong millisecond uh, or, you know, it's just a human, human frailty are now going to be put down to corruption because the evidence is there and yet for some reason it's being ignored. You know, what, what's going on? And you quickly then have these situations where um, this wrong decision is linked to all the other wrong decisions made by this referee or this VAR or this refereeing team. You know what I mean? So, for instance, this was the same team that was in place uh, the day when Liverpool and Tottenham drew two all and Harry Kane got away with a, an obvious red card tackle against uh, Andy Robertson, if you remember that. And then Diogo Jota was denied what was an equally obvious penalty. And you kind of like, so, so so then this happens. And then, okay, people people start putting two and two together. I mean, that's what people, people are always putting two and two together, right? And as we as we can see, especially since social media, people are putting two and two together at a rate that has never before been seen in human history. And it's at this moment that we've decided to introduce VAR, which gives ref referees a chance to literally ignore blatant evidence and to uh, and to still give decisions that they want. So uh, I don't think it's been good for the game. Uh, I think this is a good example of why it, it shows that you don't get you still don't get correct decisions, but the wrong decisions become hundreds of times more uh, controversial and toxic uh, than they were. And Everton apparently have have submitted an official complaint. Uh, want to know what the hell is going on here? Uh, you know, Frank Lampard. He knows this. He knows something's not right. And uh, they're looking for an apology and an explanation. I don't know where, where it is. It's possible. I know. I hate to sound like I'm, I'm echoing Richard Keyes here, but he may actually be correct that a solution to this, or or a way at least of improving it, because there isn't really a solution to it, is to have is to have access to what they're saying to each other. You know that that the that the it, as it is in rugby, the um, communication between the referee and video referee is 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 available to everybody you can hear what they're saying so that there's the, which at least brings sort of some transparency to to the process you know what i mean at least you can tell you know what 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 the reasoning is at the time or who's I, making I, the I don't think it would take any of the anger away though i think people would just because they would see and they would hear and then they would be disputing what's being said in that it might even make things worse to be honest in some ways, well, it, may, it might do. It might. It may do. On. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time Richard Key's uh, proposal had, in fact, not been effective. Uh, <laughs> however, maybe this one. I suppose. I feel. It, it, I feel, to be honest, it's such a mess. Let's throw that in as well. Mm. You know, <laughs> why, not, why not add an extra element to the mess? Uh, know, but then, I do feel ever more vindic ever more vindicated in my original. No, well, in my yeah, original you, opinion, yeah. I do feel ever more vindicated in my original opinion. You really went out in the limb there, uh, opposing yeah. VAR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, Murph, you very know, quickly. You know that line about, oh, you know, you just get progressively more right wing the older you get. I think the football journalist uh, version of that is that you start agreeing with Richard Keyes. The on the money again. <laughs> He's on the money. And, you know, I haven't even checked his blog today. And that's a that's a treat. I'm going to log off and blog up. <laughs> the book club episode I mentioned is going to be going out to world service members this week with loads of other good stuff coming up so please think about coming on board if you're not already signed up thanks Ken thanks Murph thank you Owen thank you Karen thank you Ken thank you Owen now Murph let's go let us literally go and eat cake
gone off. They never got home. They never got home. They never got home, those, those, those boys. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sports important. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 